So I'm in the studio today with Donald Miller, uh, author of Story Brand, or Building a Story Brand, and a good friend from for, uh, for many time. years. Yeah, yeah, one of my green room friends. We only see each other at events, <laughs> right. unfortunately. I, yeah. I wish we lived closer. And today, we just had an incredible day uh, with our staff. We have about 600 uh, staff, including full and part-time. And several months ago, we actually bought every, I know you hate this, we bought everybody in the organization Building a Story Brand. We, we gave them your book and required them to read it and then had every single one of our teams work through the story brand process, um, and which was fabulous. Then we had Donald come in and spend a, you know, a session with us, and he and I talked and I interviewed him, and it was, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, it just, was fun to, to be around people who have nerded out as much as I yeah. have on <laughs> Yeah, Because my wife is like, uh, yeah. Well, I would assume <laughs> in many cases you go into an organization trying to sell them on this process, and in this case, you came in on the back end. We were bought in, had worked through it, and then to glean sort of the extra content from you having worked through the book, it was it was a win for everybody. Was, yeah, that was an absolute blast. Yeah. like teaching an advanced class rather than a beginner's class. Well, good. I, I, I hope that was the case. So one of the things I thought we could talk about, um, because this is a leadership podcast, is how – and again, hopefully most of the folks in our um, audience are familiar with building a story brand. If not, you just need to buy the book, listen to the book. If you listen to the book, you will purchase the book. I listened to it and went through the actual um, book because I love to listen to books before I, I read them. So I thought since we um, had Don in the studio, we would talk specifically about how this looks or how this works within the context of leadership because it's a marketing book. Yeah. It's a branding book. Yeah. But there is so much that I think tran- yes. that is transferable Story to, to leadership. So, transfers to so yeah. many things. Yeah, so talk, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the, the, the big premise is Stop telling your story and start inviting people into a story. And so when I actually think of leadership, and, you know, people have asked me about leadership for a very long time, but it's only been, I've been more of an influencer or a speaker than a leader. It wasn't until I started a company <laughs> and, and people started showing up every day. And then there were like suddenly 15 people showing up every day that I'm like, oh, I need to learn about leadership. Yeah. Right. I can learn about, you know, standing up and speaking and, you know, but that, that was never a leader. Uh, and I realized a few things, and one is that if I stopped telling my story and started inviting people into a story that they could actually live, everything goes much better. And if you think about what a story is, it's somebody who wants something, who has to overcome conflict in order to get it. That's really what a story is. Jason Bourne wants to know who he is. He's got a bunch of conflict. He has to overcome it, and he finds out who he is. You know, Bridget Jones wants to marry her boss. She has to overcome, overcome a bunch of conflict realize her boss, her boss, she's worth more than her boss, and she meets somebody else, and there's some resolution. Rudy wants to play for Notre Dame. He has to overcome conflict. He gets in, he takes a few snaps, and that's the climactic scene. Somebody wants something, overcome conflict to get it. So as a leader, what do I need to do? Well, I need to find something we can all want as a group. And it almost doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, it almost you, doesn't matter what it is. What it is. Wow. And here's why. Because I think we get hung up on the what. No, and we what's spend the so right much thing? Right. And, we and it's get, like, no, there's 50 million right, right things. We never get past that. Yep. The point is the journey in many cases. Uh, so I, I remember this with our friend Bob Goff. And Bob and I hosted a retreat once years ago. And it was a bunch of influencers and leaders. And uh, it was about 15 or 20 of us. And I was kind of in charge of the retreat of the way Bob and I worked. We were just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and um, it was like the second morning, and Bob said, hey, what's on our plan today? What are we going to do? I said, well, I thought we'd just take, kind of take six hours off, and people could kind of, you know, we were down by the seashore and yep. all this kind of stuff. And Bob looked at me. It was the, one of the best things, Andy, anybody's ever said to me. He said, Don, people want to be taken somewhere. 
That's all he said. And I just thought, oh, my gosh. I've just I've just invited these people into a narrative void of zero direction. Wow. Right? Wow. And, and he, I, I knew Bob well enough to know it doesn't matter where. And so I said, what if we just got in the boats and went over to the waterfall and maybe you could ask a question about, you know, what's the biggest challenge you've ever had? We just made something up. And we got him in the boat, took him across the waterfall, asked a question. And it was just one of the most amazing experiences that, you know, some of those people have had. They just wanted to be taken somewhere, anywhere. That now, is now, an amazing it, thought. It, it actually is. And I've taken that so far that the last time I did a workshop in Nashville, it was a marketing workshop. It was a bunch of business leaders in the room. I wanted them to have enormous amounts of confidence in creating their marketing strategy. And really, in my opinion, a marketing strategy invites people into a story. That's what it does. That solves their problem, whether that's fixing their plumbing or, you know, whatever it is. It invites them into a story in which a problem in their life gets solved. That's what marketing should do. And I wanted these people to have confidence that rather than look around going, well, what's the right word for me to use on my website? I wanted to say, you know, there's 50 million right words to use on your website. Just go somewhere. Take them somewhere. Mm -hmm. That leads to them purchasing the product, obviously, in the case of marketing. So I said to the group, hey, I, I have a really important thing I want to tell you, uh, I, but I'm going to tell you outside on the curb along the street. This is downtown Nashville, right across from the Ryman Auditorium, skyscrapers everywhere and the honk, and loud. honking yeah. and loud. <laughs> and I said, let's go. And I started walking out of the room and 160 people you know, started following me. And I had my team put a big box out there on the curb and I had a bullhorn out there waiting for me. And I when, once everybody was there, I kind of gathered them up closer, 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 come closer, come closer. This is very, very important. What I'm going to tell you is very, very important. You have to hear me. And I grabbed the bullhorn and I said, this is what I want to tell you. People will go where you tell them to go. <laughs> all right, let's go back inside. <laughs> point, <laughs> made, point, point made. Point made. <laughs> it was a bunch of laughter and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, illustrate the point. I think that's really what a leader does. And here's the reality, Andy, and you know this better than anybody. If you don't lead them somewhere good, somebody might lead them somewhere bad. Yep. They really might. And, uh, and I think everybody listening is a leader and you are led. Yep. We're both, right? Uh, you know, you lead me in terms of so many things in terms of theology and spirituality and those kinds of things. And we're kind of in a, 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 a relationship where we have to understand that. And the worst thing that could happen is a parent say, well, you know, I don't want to lead my kids. You know, uh, I want them to figure it out on I their own. I want them to figure it out I've on their own or so who am times. I to lead them. Right. I don't, I have, I don't have things yep. figured out. Uh, into that narrative void steps chaos fast. And it, even in our, you know, I remember this, you know, Betsy and I, I don't know how I ended up with this great marriage. I really don't. Uh, Betsy and I, I think we've had two arguments, maybe our entire marriage. We, we just, it's just really a great relationship. After a string of like bad, you know, me being an idiot and dating. And I remember going to, when, after Betsy and I got engaged, I went out to a business conference uh, out in Oregon and was talking to Betsy on the phone. We're just engaged. So we're not married. There was some tension, some weirdness in the call that I hadn't experienced before with her. wasn't sure what was going on. But I got off the phone, walked right into a little workshop, and we were going to write a 90-day business plan for my business. Well, I write business plans every day. Right? I mean, I just love it. And I thought, huh, I need to get my head straight on this. I crossed out the word business, and I wrote marriage because I just asked her to marry me. And I filled it out, and I wrote, you know, you know, it's like, what's your mission? What are you going to accomplish? We will have a restorative marriage. And by that, I meant life is hard. Whenever she comes home or I come home, let's try to restore each other. Right. And whenever people walk into our house, 
we are going to try to restore them because life has kind of taken something from them. It was just a direction. It wasn't the right direction. Wasn't, it was just a direction. And I took a picture of that once I filled it out. There were other things that I filled out and you know, sent the picture to her with my iPhone. And then I thought, she's going to kill me. I basically have just turned our marriage into a business plan. Like our children are going to be little franchises and we're going to do a <laughs> cost-benefit analysis. She's going to kill me. This is the least romantic thing any man has ever done. So we talked that night. She goes, you have no idea how helpful that was. I'm like, well, unpack that. What do you mean? She said, Don, you're taking me away from the city that I've been in for eight years, the close friends that I yeah. have, the career that I have, which is going extremely well. You're taking me to Nashville, Tennessee. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I don't know who I'm going to hang out with. And I realized, oh, my gosh, I was taking her into a narrative void. So, you know, right. And from that point on, that's been the theme of our marriage for five years now. And, it's and you ma- haven't worried about if it's the right one or not. No, because there there's been, a North Star of some sort. That All I know is yep. it was a good one out of a choice of 250 million good ones. But because we've actually said this is the controlling idea, if we we're writing a screenplay, mm-hmm. that would be, the con- would be called the controlling idea. Uh, we have over 200 overnight guests a year. We have 30 overnight guests this month. We'll have 600 people over for dinner. And the, every time somebody comes, I'm we so say— I'm so glad I didn't say that. And I'm an that introvert. As, yeah. <laughs> we're literally we're building a house right now. It's just Betsy and I. We have no kids. We're building a house with 18 beds to house the mission of our marriage, which is to restore people. That's amazing. I don't know what that is. It's a little tiring. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to restore us? But That's what I want to know. This but you is, see what I'm saying? No, no, There's this a is direction. a huge idea. Right. This is such a big idea because I, because of my personality, I easily get hung up on, but what if it's the wrong thing? What if it's the wrong thing? Everybody I, does. My dad yeah. used to, when I was in high school, he would put me in his office, his home office and say, you need to set some goals. And he would leave me in there with a yellow pad and a pen and say, don't come out till you have some goals. Because he's a goal setter. This I mean, explains like, everything about Andy He has Andy goals and sub-goals. And, you know, he's yeah. just such a planner. And I would, I would be paralyzed by fear to this point of what if I set the wrong goal? What yeah. if I have the wrong yeah. goal? And I just couldn't set goals. And, I have, and that has been a, a struggle, you know, forever until— You're just wanting I, to get it right. I wanted to get it right. And I think the point of this conversation is— the, there's something worse than not getting it right, and that's not getting anything. Well, and right is subjective. Well, absolutely. I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier about the vacuum when there's a vacuum in leadership. Um, and you said we talked about kids or family. If there's not a direction, somebody's going to point in a direction, and it could be a bad direction. Right. One of the things that I've seen in organizational life, and I bet you have as well, is the when the point leader is not leading or setting a direction – there's oftentimes someone back in the relation, back in the organization, who because they are more prone toward leadership and because they have a vision even for the organization, um, they will begin over time to be perceived as the leader because mm-hmm. they're the only ones leading. And it right. may not be a bad direction. Right. It's just now you have a conflict between no direction and a direction that's being set by someone who doesn't have the authority to set the direction. That's right. And this happens all the time. And one of the challenges for people in, in my season of life and season of leadership, I have, I'm surrounded by so many capable leaders. I know that the moment I take my foot off the gas or the moment I, I step back into the parade, yes. game over. And it won't be game over because something bad happens or it's a bad direction. But if I'm not setting the pace, and again, um, you know, leading, then the leaders behind me, they're going to lead. They're yeah, n- into they're... the narrative void will step a leader Ex- every time. Exactly. And it, sometimes it's a bad thing, but sometimes it just creates unnecessary conflict because the leader hasn't 
you know, continue to lead. Yeah, but there's it, there's someone is going to step into that vacuum, and that creates an interesting dynamic in an organization for sure. Yeah, I would think that that's tension. You know, um, I, I love how all of this the, the the importance of a leader can't be over over you know expressed here. What we're re- when you're inviting somebody into a story, when you're defining something that we all want, and you're naming the challenge that we're going to have to overcome, and you're painting a picture of a climactic scene. You know, every year in our organization, we come up with goals, and then we actually have a scoreboard uh, that we're creating this year where every person uh, is represented by a color of a Post-it note. So I'm purple, you know, JJ's green, Tim's blue. And you actually look at our goals, and what everybody's job is is it relates to that goal, and they get to move a Post-it note to the done section, and you just have this color-coded thing of this beautiful thing that we've actually created. Part of that is to accomplish our goals as an organization. We're trying to grow. Part of that, in, in my thinking as a leader, is actually to guide people into what's called logotherapy. And it's uh, Viktor Frankl's whole deal that he developed at, to contend with Sigmund Freud. He was a Viennese psychologist. Yeah, you talk about that in the book a little I bit. I do, yeah. yeah. And what happens when – well, Frankl, Viktor Frankl was in, the, was in the, the concentration camps, two of them, and developed a personality – not a personality theory. He developed a therapeutic process to take people through who were depressed. What, a, what an amazing place to actually develop that, right, wow. in the concentration camps. Yeah, who's not depressed? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, boy, it was a struggle for him, but it, it was actually very helpful for some of the people that he, he was in there with. Thank God he survived. Uh, then he went into the Viennese hospital system, and they had a significant problem with suicides. And he gave them a three-part therapeutic process that you won't believe how simple it is. One is he had suicidal patients identify a project that they – could work on, that if they didn't work on, somebody would suffer. So in other words, a reason to actually wake up and say, I'm important, not just for myself or somebody else. Why do I need to do it? That's exactly. (laughs) So, you know, they're going to write a book or they're going to compose a symphony or they're going to plant a garden or they're going to whatever. I don't care what it is. I mean, he didn't care. That was what was amazing. He didn't care what it was. Just what is the definitive project that is important for you to get up in the morning? Second, a redemptive perspective on your suffering. And what this actually meant was when something painful happens to you, let's not excuse it or, or say it's, you know, have an optimistic view of it. It's painful. The Holocaust is painful. Mm-hmm. And actually, it, but what is a redemptive perspective on this and suffering? And they have to create or manufacture or They think just about have it. to use their executive brain to say, okay, this is really a terrible thing. And on the other side of this terrible thing is something that's positive. So – you know, in the in the worst possible scenario, uh, somebody came to him and said, how can you possibly find a redemptive perspective on what's happening to us in this concentration camp? And Viktor Frankl said, well, let's think about it. It's obviously a terrible thing. Uh, we're obviously probably going to die in here. But if you commit suicide, uh, you will rob yourself of an amazing opportunity. And the guy said, what opportunity? <laughs> and he said... If you let them kill us, if they starve us, your death will serve a greater purpose because it will teach the world how evil they are. Oh, my goodness. So even not killing yourself and letting them kill you served a a redemptive redemptive purpose. purpose. And the man's uh, spirit immediately immediately rose because he had a great dignity and purpose in life. That's amazing. It is. So that's one reason that – you know, we all have hard childhoods, and I grew up. We grew up so poor. Oh my gosh, stood in line for government cheese and all that kind of stuff. 
I remember going through a self-pity phase in my, in my early 20s of thinking, well, why is life so hard for me, blah, blah, blah. Once I understood what Victor Frank was talking about, you almost rewrite your entire history. Where you your just entire say, history? Your, your entire history. Where you actually say, well, yeah, my dad split, but that taught me a compassion for young men growing up without dads, which caused me to write this book. And 10,000 of those books were put into prisons. And, oh, my gosh, that was one of the – I remember a day, Andy, because I'd read Victor Franklin and I understood this, um, I lost all my money. So I wrote Blue Like Jazz, made, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, paid off my house, sold that house. I was very smart with the money. Sold that house, put all the money into an investment uh, because I needed an investment that would hold it for six months until I bought a different house. Just, you know, a series of events. I remember a Monday morning waking up and realizing it was gone. Every penny. From blue light jazz. From all of my my savings, you know. After you, the you, book. You usually get one hit book. You better, yeah. you know, it's like being in the NFL. <laughs> you, better, you better put that right. money away. And I did it. And I remember... Uh, being so incredibly depressed, feeling so stupid, and then thinking about what Viktor Frankl said. And, and I said to myself, this is the best day of your life, and you know it. You know it's the best day of your financial life. You know it is. It didn't make me happy, but I knew it. I knew it. Because? That, because what I will learn from this experience will shape the entire rest of my life, my financial life. Wow, and it did. And it did. Every that was eight years of savings, and I was very smart with money. Uh, what I learned on that morning, the emotional response to that, which was, I'm taking back over my career, I'm changing all my management, I'm actually going to form a company and do all that. I'm going to stop being passive in my fan in my career. Um, Betsy and I put away every thirty days what I lost that morning today. Wow! Into savings or generosity, every thirty days. And I knew that morning, this is this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. It, but I didn't feel it for months. And how old were you when that happened? Oh, I mean, I was in my thirties, yeah. in my mid thirties. And uh, so he says a redemptive. So if you can actually do that, it's really a, 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 an antidote for depression. And then also, uh, you need to take people with you. He would say you need a community of people who are close friends who love you unconditionally. No, no, you know, stop trying to project an identity and actually get to know people really well. Those three elements, he calls it logotherapy, uh, a project that you need to work on, a redemptive perspective of your suffering, and close, unconditional relationships who accept you as you are. Those three things, he had in the Viennese hospital system when he started taking people through logotherapy, he had zero suicides after that, and they had a massive suicide problem. In my opinion, as a leader, when we're inviting people into story, you're inviting them into logotherapy. Let's work on a project together, and let's right. work on our relationships while we're building it. I don't care what it is. Let's build it. I mean, as long as it's ethically okay, yeah. right? Uh, but it doesn't have to be the right or the perfect project. The problem is there are 50 million right and perfect <laughs> right. projects, right? So the leader is going to choose one. I'm reminding myself, not our audience. <laughs> and we're going to do that together. And also, it's going to be very hard and we're going to experience setbacks. But every time we do, we're going to circle up. And we're going to figure out what we learned from them. You're not just leading people. You're healing them. Mm. I mean, you're taking them through logotherapy and you're healing them. You know, you're healing the way their brains are connected. and uh, That's powerful. That, but that's what leader, I think that's what leadership is, and that's why and we need more good ones. So walk us through that series within the context of story brand. Well, story brand uh, really ex- uses story or to help you story clarify narrative. your message. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so the, the narrative would be uh, 
if leaders saw themselves metaphorically as the director of movies. So you really want to you want to answer three questions for your organization. Where are we going? Give me a compelling vision for the future. What does it look like? What does the future look like? And what's amazing, as you know, is there's so many people who, uh, and this is just shocking to me, they don't have a vision for the future. And they're not even wired to have a vision for the future. They're just not. They're wired to join somebody else's vision. And thank God for them, because <laughs> that vision would never come to pass if it was on right, my shoulders. Right. These are executors. These are administrators. These are those. So what's a compelling vision for the future? Uh, like I said to my wife, you know, where my wife is going, where are you taking us? Where's this marriage going? Just go anywhere. Like, where's it going? So a compelling vision for the future. Uh, where are we going? And then why does it matter? So if we don't build North Point in, you know, this part of the city or a branch of North Point. Uh, um, What's at stake? These people are going to be yeah. more lonely. There's gonna, there's, they're they're going to make bad decisions. Their marriages might fall apart. Their kids will not grow up with friends. They won't have an ethical uh, they won't have ethical boundaries. They won't have a moral compass. That's re- you know the stakes are huge. Okay, well now I'm really now this is we're planning a church. I'm super in right because the stakes are huge for somebody else. Uh, and then what's my role? So if I figure out that's one of the big challenges with our with our team scoreboard is you know there are three major projects we're trying to build this year, and I've got to get every color post-it note on every project. Otherwise, I'm saying you're not important. Wow. You're not important. Yeah, that's, and that's a challenge. Yeah, that's and, it, a take, and the leadership has to sit down and say, how do we get more green post-it notes on this particular project? Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't have to be on every project, but green post-it notes on that thing. So for every leader, you, your people are really asking, where are we going? Why does it matter? Why am I important yep. in that? And if we can just walk around answering those three questions, yep. you know. Well, that's so interesting, and I don't think you've heard me talk about this because – it wasn't that long ago on, a, on one of our leadership podcasts. I kind of gave my version of that, and it was, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And where do I fit in? Where do I fit in? And, you know, the first two are pretty simple. As the leader, I get to determine those. And then to help people script, because and, and the way I do it, I have people create a one-sentence responsibility statement. In other words, this is specifically where you fit in, and I help them wordsmith that because, you know, some people are better than that at others. But everybody needs to be – and in every great organization, everybody should be able to answer that question. Yeah. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Where do I fit in? And everybody should be able to answer the first two questions the same way because there's only one what and there's probably a primary why. And yeah. then that third part is – it's a little bit more challenging, but it's it's as important. So Yeah, and, you know, framing it as a narrative is – it's huge. It, you know, we're, we're circling around all the same ideas because mm-hmm. none, none of us invented this stuff. This is just age-old stuff. Um, but w- w- I'm curious about what you think about this. A lot of times we say, well, we have a mission statement. And I, and I usually think the mission statement is not worth it very much because it isn't framed as a narrative. Yep. You know, I was meeting with an organization of, uh, you know, let's say architects because I don't want to give away the company or anything. But, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're in downtown Nashville. I'm meeting with these architects. And um, the CEO, I'm meeting with just the C-suite. So these are all his leaders. Yep. And the CEO says, we have a mission statement. And I said, yeah, but your mission statement, I don't, I don't know what their mission statement is. I said, it's probably not serving you very well. Now, we did a 48-hour leadership retreat. We were all there. We came up with our mission statement. It's literally painted right on the other side of this conference room mm-hmm. on the wall. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't, you know, I just, I doubt it. He said, no. And I said, okay, stop talking. And I pointed at one of the other leaders in the C-suite. And I said, what's the mission statement? And he didn't know. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> and I said, but listen, if you frame it as a narrative, 
You don't have to paint it on the wall. Everybody yeah. will know. If you said, and I turn around and you're looking at the skyline of downtown Nashville, and I said, if you said something like, urban design causes a constant low level of anxiety in most people. We exist to create architecture that gives people a sense of peace. Well, now, we, there's a reason we exist. It solves a problem. The stakes are high, right? The, and there the is low a mission. Anxiety. And there's a mission. But it's not a mission statement. But it's not. We, you know, know. trust we, is the commodity. We, we exchange. Right, right. We create. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. It, you know, so, and, and all, what's amazing, you know, I'm talking to the king of this, uh, is it's just words. But it, it's amazing how powerful it, words are. Words. Everything that we see yes. has been built on words. Everything. And when you watch Everything. when you watch any Good poli- and bad. Yeah, when you watch any politician or any great leader. Oh, it's a fascinating study. When I was writing Building a Story Man, I didn't reference this, but I spent a good three weeks comparing Churchill to uh, Hitler. Yep. And what I was, was about to what bring was off terrifying to me. I'll let you bring him up. Yeah, <laughs> what was terrifying to me is they were doing the same thing. Yep. They were both saying, um, you know, they were bo- Churchill was pa- painting the, the British as the heroes going after evil. Uh, and so was Hitler. He was uniting people. Uh, and he was literally, he called them the Christ, fig- Germany, the Christ figures of the world, hmm. sacrificing for the sake of a better. One was evil, very, very clearly. Uh, and one was not. One was heroic. And, but they were using the same techniques. And when you begin to stu- when you begin to understand how you can just change the fabric of the narrative with what, and, just words with just words yep. and build buildings and start wars and stop wars and feed children or neglect children or you realize good people better step up and know how to do this fast. I when I talk about this um, and I have a. a a, um, a long quote from um, the Third Reich, um, Albert Speer, mm-hmm. Adolf Hitler's architect, yeah. wrote mm-hmm. a book and his memoirs. It's, uh, it's fascinating. But anyway, the, when I finished that book, it dawned on me that, that Hitler actually split the world with a microphone. Mm-hmm. That's all he did was talk. Mm-hmm. He talked the world the whole right. world into war. I mean, it's he invited them into a dark, yes, and evil story, and they followed him. And so, again, for for all the communicators or for anybody who aspires to be, or for writers, there there's really is there anything more powerful than words? I just I just don't think so. You can shape a person's future, a self esteem. You think about you can, the, the you know who knows if it's metaphoric or what, but God spoke the world yeah. into existence, yeah. which is In weird. The beginning to think was about. the word. Yeah, yeah. 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 He spoke Spoke it. it, yeah. He spoke it. It's a and and he gives us the power, you know, metaphorically to do something. We speak very, very worlds similar. into existence all the time, yeah, on purpose you know, or yeah. by accident. Every parent knows that. And, and, and we frame things. There was a, a young lady, six year old, who, uh, you know, was playing with other kids and was clearly the one who wanted to be in control and blah 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 blah. And I, uh, you know, her 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 mom and dad were sort of embarrassed. And I just thought, oh, they are misunderstanding what's happening here. Of course, there's some problems you need to deal with, right? <laughs> and uh, But I said, boy, that's a young leader, isn't it? That's mm-hmm. a young leader. Yep. Boy, she'll shape up into an amazing she leader. She just hasn't found her voice. And you could see them just go, what? Yeah. <laughs> Bro, you just changed the narrative. <laughs> changed the yeah, whole narrative. you just narr- flipped it. Wow. To be more accurate. Yep. So let's, let's – This isn't a problem. It's a leader. Yeah. Let's, you, let's, you're raising the president. You understand what you need to do here? Or a dictator. Or hopefully a president. A, a good president who doesn't yeah, exactly. confuse himself with a dictator. So, <laughs> so to, to come full circle, so for, our, for the leaders that are listening, um, f- first of all, you need 
to get the book and read the book to understand the whole art of the story brand concept. But again, to bring this back down to leadership, it is about identifying the journey we want people to go on with yeah. us, not be all freaked out about is it the perfect journey, but at least identify it so people know where they're going, set those expectations, give them a compelling reason why this is the journey That's we're right. going on together, and then everybody has to find their place in the story. That's right. And, then, so if I and stopped, then talk for just a minute about how then as the point leader – I can't make the mistake because this is one of the powerful takeaways from your book. I can't make the mistake of confusing my role as leader with my role as hero. It is very right. easy for the point leader to begin thinking they're the hero. Right. And then Which will destroy everything. It destroys everything. So if, if we could close, just talk a little bit about the point leader's role as guide versus hero in this The big paradigm framework. shift in the book from a marketing perspective, but it's a leadership perspective too, is never play the hero in the story. Always play the guide. And the guide is a character in the story that almost always shows up. And the point, the purpose of the guide is to help the hero win the day. And so, in other words, be Yoda, don't be Luke Skywalker. Be Hamish, don't be Katniss. Uh, be Lionel in the King's Speech, don't be George. And the reason is there's two reasons you never want to play the hero in the story as a leader. The first is when you play the hero in the story, you remove yourself from your stakeholder's story. So, Andy, if you and I meet at a party and uh, you say, Don, how are you doing? What's going on with you? And I say, oh, you know, I'm trying to grow my company. We're trying to increase our great places to work metric. We've got a fourth quarter revenue goal that we're trying to hit. And, you know, we're trying to land this big account. What's happening in your subconscious is you're saying, I, Andy, am a hero in a story. I woke up this morning. I had a bunch of, you know, coffee maker didn't work. Had to go buy a new coffee maker. And, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm the hero in the story overcoming conflict. And Don, sounds like, is a hero in a story yeah. overcoming conflict. Um, you may be very interested in how my story ends up, but I'm in a different story. Hmm. I have now separated myself from your story. Where if you say, um, let's say we're at that same story, or that, that same uh, uh, party, and you say, Don, how have things been going? You know, it's been going really great. I've actually uh, been working with a bunch of pastors whose churches have exploded, and I'm really helping them uh, figure out how to use the Internet to, to grow it even further or to, to reach more people. I yeah. just entered into your story. Right. You just we just overlapped. Yeah. yeah. You said, wait a second, this is a guide. Yeah. Right? He knows something I, I He knows would something like to I don't know. know. I, I need that information. And now I'm in your story, I'm involved in your story. There's a second reason you never want to play the hero in the story. Uh, heroes are the weak. They're not the weakest character in the story, but they're usually the second weakest. The victim is the weakest. The 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 hero uh, we think of heroes as strong. You think of the rock at the end of San Andreas or you know something like that and they're strong. Go back and watch the movie again. It was 90 minutes of weakness, 90 minutes of I don't know if I can get the Insecurity, job done. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure I couldn't do it last time. Yeah. I doubt I can do it again. Uh, full of self-doubt and in desperate need of help. Why would you as a leader want to position yourself as the second weakest character in the story? Mm -hmm. So as soon as you say, you know, we're trying to do this and we're awesome and we're this, what people smell is weakness. So think about in well, political campaigns. Well, you smell campaigns. weakness, and you, as the longer they talk, the less interested That's you right. actually are. You That's find right. yourself listening at them rather than to them. That's exactly. And then right. I find myself thinking, they have no idea how <laughs> uninterested I am in what they are saying. They are so caught up in being the hero. My wife said something, and my wife is my wife is she's just never critical. I can't even really make critical comments about anybody around her because she's she's just so positive. But we did have somebody come, a stranger, come to a party at our house once, and I said, "What was it about him?" And she said, "She said," and I just I laughed so hard. She said, "He wrongly assumes his life is interesting." <laughs> <laughs> 
That's just going to kill me if that uh, makes it. Anyway, no, no. Hey, but, growing up with a famous dad, <laughs> I saw it all the time, and then it has repeated, and I sort of feel like I live my life twice because I sort of am oh, yeah, my dad yeah. in a different generation. And as a kid, I would watch people walk up to my dad, and they're like, oh, Dr. Stanley, and then they would start talking. And they would talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And I would sit there as a kid and think, we're not interested. What made you think he wanted to hear your whole life? But they're nervous. I, I get that. Yeah. But that, that dynamic happens all the time. So you were going to say something. We'll, wrap well up. and that's really it. So if you're the guide in the story, you're actually the person everybody's looking for. You know, everybody's looking for somebody to help them win. Yep. And, and that is a God-given survival mechanism. It really is. I mean, we all – when I say win, I really mean survive. Right. Thrive you know, make the most of their life. And so when we, as leaders, when we position ourselves as a guide, we're, we've suddenly become the person everybody's looking for. And what's amazing to me, you know, if you flash forward to your funeral, and I actually just recently in a little thing wrote what I want people to say about me at my funeral. It's, it's, a, a, great, it's a great exercise. exercise. Really it great sure exercise. Is, yep. And um, uh, if we flash, fa- flash forward to our funeral, uh, you will realize that if you wanted to be respected in life, if you wanted people to pay attention to you, if you wanted people to... Uh, cry because you're gone everything that you thought you were going to get by playing the hero you'll only get by playing the guy wow that's it now there there's still you know if you talk to my wife i mostly play the hero and that you know i'm (laughs) there's close intimate relationships where you you know you have to go okay can i just tell you my story (laughs) real quick and that's an important part of just living but i think in terms of leadership i think you you mostly check that at the door Yep, and you, you have to. You sacrifice to, that. To be a good leader. Yep, you yep. sacrifice that. Wow. Well, this has been fantastic. And again, to our audience, you've got to read uh, Building a Story Brand. Um, once you read it, you're going to want your entire staff or your team to read it. We did, and it was a fabulous day and a fabulous exercise, and we will um, benefit from this for really, I think, years to come. So thanks so much for writing the book, and thanks so much for uh, spending an afternoon with us and being a part of the Andy Stanley Leadership Podcast. One of my favorite conversations. I'm so grateful. And as always, we invite you to check out andystanley.com, where you can find our Leadership Podcast Application Guide to go with today's conversation. We will see you next month.